Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On today's episode, we have Steve Vassallo, General Partner at Foundation Capital. Previously, Steve was Vice President of Product and Engineering at the social media platform Ning. He also worked as a project leader and design engineer at IDEO, where he developed successful products for companies such as Cisco, Nike, and BMW. Here's Steve. You know, ETL was actually a favorite of mine uh, when I came to Stanford uh, almost 25 years ago. And in fact, even when I was at the business school almost 10 years later, I used to sneak over here because you guys always have these um, great, great talks and speakers. And when Tina asked me actually to give this talk, I have to say it was with some amount of sort of trepidation because I was thinking about the fact that 25 times a year, you all get to hear from these sort of fully formed, successful Silicon Valley executives and leaders dropping wisdom on sort of you all from their sort of decades of, of experience. And I kind of was thinking about, well, this feels, feels sometimes like these, like these massive live oak trees that are all over campus. And they're just like beautiful and large and strong. But we sometimes forget that like they were little seedlings at one time. And there are all these experiences that sort of add another ring or a branch uh, to each of that sort of greater whole. So, as Tina said, I've had a lot of different experiences and roles uh, in, in my career here, starting out as a product designer, then as an entrepreneur, and, and now as an investor. So I thought it would be fun to actually deconstruct a few of the lessons that I have kept learning over and over again from these many experiences, or as I sometimes think about them now, as from Steve's jobs. <laughs> now, the first job I ever had was actually when I was a kid. So I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. And if you know Worcester, a couple of you, it's, about, uh, it's a working class city about, uh, about an hour west of Boston. And Worcester's known for three things. It was actually a booming industrial center in the last century. It was the home to, the, to Robert Goddard, one of the founding fathers of modern rocketry. But the thing that I remember most were the crazy nor'easter snowstorms that would literally bury the city one to two times a year with like one to two feet of snow. So let me tell you about the motivation behind my first job. I was actually the ninth child in a family of 10 kids. So the majority of the things that I grew up with were actually hand-me-downs from my eight older uh, siblings. And there were actually 10 years and four sisters between me and my next older brother. So pretty much all the stuff that was handed down to me was either out of style or altogether out of gender. But when I was eight, my dad came home with this lime green go-kart from the Auburn, Sears, and Roebuck. And he had picked this up at a deep discount because it had actually been sent to the wrong store. Now, I was immediately hooked. And I used to take that go-kart out, rain or shine, whenever I could and zoom around the neighborhood, sometimes sneaking over to the school. And in fact, all I wanted to do now was make this thing go faster. And when my dad would look the other way, I would lean out the carburetor so I could kind of eke out an extra mile or two per hour. And this little four horsepower go-kart really was the beginning of my obsession for cars and all things that go fast. So when I turned 13, I saw a review in one of my favorite motorsports magazines for this crazy cool dune buggy that Honda had just launched. It had a 350cc two-stroke engine, a fully working suspension, 
and very importantly, a rule cage so that I could rationalize to my parents that it was actually safer than the go-kart that I'd been racing around in. But in order to underwrite this passion, I was gonna need to get a job other than the Sunday morning paper route I had at the time. Now, I didn't actually wanna bag groceries at Fortin's, which is where my older brothers had worked, and I just figured out how to run the snowblower uh, that I had been using to clear the driveway and the sidewalks from those crazy nor'easter snowstorms. And that's when the light bulb went off in my internal combustion addicted middle school mind. I would sell my services, snowblowing services, to all of my neighbors. Now, I had a decent snowblower. It wasn't a great one, but it was good enough to get started. The next thing I needed was an identity. Business cards, of course. So, I convinced the head of the seventh grade print shop to let me bail on the, basically, the mock book cover project, and instead, I built my first business cards in print shop class. And this was now Steve's Snowblowing Services. So I actually still carry one of these things in my wallet today. It's a great reminder. And from this little business, I learned the first version of three really important lessons. Number one, learn how to sell. So I had a snowblower and I had business cards and now all I needed was customers. Total dread. I mean, this idea of going to my neighbors and selling them my services was just completely paralyzing to me to the point where I can still remember walking up their steps, standing on their front porch and staring at the door knocker with just abject fear. And then, I would kind of muster everything I had, knock on the door, and deliver my pitch. And the first few times just totally sucked. And then I landed my first customer, Mrs. Painton. She had a long driveway and a lot of steps, which was the very manual part, so she was worth 40 bucks a storm. And then I locked down the Tinsleys and then the Rices, two doors down from them, and pretty soon, I was beginning to kind of push past the confines of my street, which is literally still stained with this very ironic dead-end sign on the corner. And now I was seeing, okay, more sort of top-step doorbell dread, more butterflies, but more customers. And pretty soon, I had to upgrade to a much more powerful eight-horsepower snowblower. And I also upgraded my print shop business cards to these much fancier flyers that I painstakingly designed on the IBM 8086 computer that we had in our basement. And this was the second lesson that I learned. Design matters. I must have made 30 different versions of these business cards with 50 different fonts and spacings and alignment. And I'm convinced that my customers took me more seriously and I could probably charge them more because it was clear that I actually cared. And that dovetails to the third lesson that I learned. Take out the garbage. My dad used to say, no matter what it is to, you choose to do in life, just do it with excellence. If you wanna be a garbage collector, just be the best darn garbage collector there is. Be ready and willing to take on the unglamorous tasks. Changing the oil and greasing the bearings of that snowblower in between every snowstorm was a total drag, but guess what? 
it never broke down during one of those big storms. And by the time that I had turned 14, I was making $400 per storm because I had committed myself to this little business in these ways. I came to this realization that we're all natural born entrepreneurs. Oh, I got that dune buggy. In fact, I still have that dune buggy. No joke. So eventually I went off to school uh, to WPI where I studied uh, engineering and robotics. I built this. This was the lightest SAE formula race car of its time from scratch, along with half a dozen classmates uh, of mine. Uh, I studied abroad in Germany and then Switzerland, thinking that I wanted to be an automotive engineer, uh, and then figured out that this industry was way too conservative and slow moving for my taste. So I came here to Stanford to get a master's in engineering. Now this was a really good decision because I met my wife in ME218. Thank you, Ed Carrier. And I also met David Kelly during my first Friday here on campus when he opened my eyes to the world of product design. A few months later, after seeing my final ME101 project, I was a grad student at the time, David came up to me and said, as you guys have heard him probably in his plaintive whine say, you gotta work at IDEO this summer. And that summer was a total blast. And the beginning of five amazing years at IDEO, which is an incredibly special place. I started out as an individual contributor, building skills, pulling all-nighters, and putting into practice a lot of the things that you all learn here at Stanford. Things like user observations and need finding and rapid prototyping, and the actually totally overlooked but hugely important role of storytelling. I worked on everything from toys to furniture, anesthesia delivery devices, Nike's first sunglasses, a rapid bun toaster for McDonald's. I, I actually went to Hamburger University, no joke. And through the prism of these different experiences and projects, I learned that, yes, design does matter, but design is a lot more than tuning the pixels on that snow-blowing flyer. Design was actually about the what. It was about asking the right questions and solving problems of all manner and level of importance. It was actually not necessarily about giving users or clients at IDEO what they had asked for, but oftentimes giving them something that when they saw it was what they wanted all along. So I did this a few times over at IDEO, and about four years in, I got asked to lead a very high-stakes pro project to develop a family of voice over IP phones for Cisco. Now, why was this such a big deal? So my initial proposal for this project was $3 million, which was four times larger than the largest project I had ever led at IDEO and the largest project at IDEO at the time. Cisco was actually one of the Silicon Valley darlings. It was closing in on a market cap of half a trillion dollars. And it was clear that if, if, if we were successful on this project, there would be a lot more work to come. And then for me, this was a bit of a magnum opus project. I would be working with the best people in each of the disciplines at IDEO, including Bill Moggridge, who was literally the founding father of the field of interaction design. Oh, and Cisco, they had never designed a product with an actual user interface. Never mind a phone 
that would touch your face 50 times a day. Like that's a product you gotta get right. So high stakes on many fronts. But I thought I had this. And then we have our kickoff meeting. And all these big wheels join from Cisco. Mario Mazzola, Luca Cafiero, these are the Cisco mafia as they were affectionately known. And they had these super strong opinions about what we were supposed to build. And I immediately realized that this is gonna be like one very spicy meatball to manage this team. And then they introduced me to my counterpart, whose name is also Steve, and who literally just joined the company two weeks prior to the kickoff meeting. So he had actually not been involved in the whole proposal process, but he wasted no time in telling me about his 20-year career in telecom at this very prominent uh, company at the time, and how he knows better than me about what the market and the users really want, and about all these things we have to get done. And then he hands me, with an almost satanic smile, this 100-page product requirements document, the infamous PRD. And this thing is just loaded with features and functions and telephony jargon that I had never seen before. And as he's walking me through this thing, he makes this point that still sticks with me, which was that business phones, so enterprise phones at the time, had this sort of secret symbolic sort of meaning around how much power you had in the company. So more features meant more buttons meant more power. So like the CEO had one of those giant phones with lots and lots of buttons so they could call anybody directly. So here's this guy who's brand new to this whole pro high profile project, has just started, but super strong conviction about what we're supposed to build. He has no interest in user experience, doesn't give a lick about design. And he's gonna be the guy who I have to interact with literally a couple times a week and, and, uh, and build a team around. So I definitely had my work cut out for me. So here I was, back to square one, back to doing the hard work of user observations and ethnography and need finding and building prototypes, back to the hard work of being a user-centered designer. So instead of just accepting that PRD at face value, I set up visits to go meet with a bunch of users who live on desk phones all the time. We went to a call center in the East Bay, a trading floor. So these were people who literally worked every day on their phones. And by doing this, I learned which features they understood and used all the time, and which ones made no sense. In fact, I still remember seeing this phone that had Sharpie markings all over it because the user had no idea what the flash button actually meant. I'm not sure I still know what it means either. And these were some of the priceless, on the ground, insights that we absorbed that help us build a much deeper, more informed, more intuitive sense for what a great desk phone could and should be. And that's when we began the hard work of synthesizing, putting all this stuff together. So we went back through that insane list of features and functions, and we graphed each one of them in terms of their frequency and their immediacy. So on this graph, from left to right, low, frequency, or low immediacy to high immediacy, and then top to bottom, low frequency to high frequency. 
So those features that were high frequency and high immediacy, so things like dialing a number or hanging up on someone quickly or changing the volume on your handset, you had to access those with a hard key. You had to get those right away. But then there were all these features that, that had context associated with them. So joining two calls or transferring a call. Those were kinds of features that you could, you could surface that functionality only when you needed it. And then there were all these features which were in the low frequency, low immediacy quadrant. Things like changing your ringtone. You might do it once, you need it, but it is such a low frequency thing that we could actually have it buried deep down in the interface. So, instead of our phone having hundreds of buttons and looking like the cockpit of a 747, we developed and launched the world's first truly dynamic display-based phone interface. So features and apps that you use all the time would be right there on the top of the user interface hierarchy, kind of like today having those four apps at the bottom of your home screen on your iPhone. And functions that were more contextual could be surfaced only when you needed them. Now, I realize you all use smartphones today, and this seems like a really obvious insight from like a million years ago. But at the time, breaking that dogma of more features means more buttons was actually a pretty big deal that actually ushered in the era of phones that would enable, that had interfaces that would enable an infinite number of apps and an infinite number of features and functionality without having to have an infinite number of buttons. And that was a pretty big deal. In fact, I mean, my iPhone has this wonderful ITO-coded, chemically-reinforced glass, but it only has three buttons on it, right? Maybe four if you, if you count the slide switch. Now, not only were these phones transformed, but this entire industry was turned upside down. Companies like Nortel and Nokia, which used to have close to 50% market share, and didn't make this shift, they literally are gone. And Cisco and Apple, which hadn't made a phone, are now basically owning these categories. So guess what happened to other Steve? My Cisco counterpart, the guy who was the keeper of the PRD and who used to berate me on the phone every time he would get one of my monthly invoices. We made him look like a genius. Now, I haven't seen him in a long time, but a few years after we launched the product, Cisco had already shipped 100 million units of that phone. Our phone was everywhere, including on the desk of the president. I was pretty jazzed when I saw that. And he stopped needling me about those monthly invoices. And for me, I left this project with much deeper respect for the hard work of user-centered design. But even more importantly, I left this project, which was my last one at IDEO, with the confidence that I could design anything. So, take a drink of water here. I went on to join my first startup where I developed some cool haptic technologies. These are touch technologies that all of you with a smartphone or a smartwatch 
uh, use every time you scroll up and down uh, or push a button to select that little tactile feedback you feel. That's something that I worked on a long time ago. And we licensed those technologies actually to many companies, uh, which actually um, unlocked a goal that I had had when I'd left IDEO as a consultant, which was, how can I make money while I sleep? So I was feeling pretty jazzed about that. We took the company public. In fact, Immersion is still a public company today. But I was actually itching to start my own company. And so I decided to head back to Stanford to come to the GSB so I could actually get smart on that third circle, that business needs circle. This was actually from my business school application back in 2001 um, of this, what is now sort of a ubiquitous Venn diagram you guys see all over campus. And I spent my two years at the GSB experimenting with lots and lots of ideas. And in the summer of 2004, I got a meeting with Mark Andreessen as a prospective angel investor for this project that I was working on at the time, this mobile messaging idea. Now, instead of me getting Mark's $100,000 check, I learned in this first meeting that Mark and Gina Bianchini, his co-founder, who was actually a classmate and friend of my wife's, had actually just founded a new company under the stealth name of 24HL. 24-hour laundry was what we joked it meant. Now, Mark and Gina wouldn't share much in the way of details of what they were working on, but this idea had sprung from Mark's passion for platforms. He's a platform guy. But also a deep conviction that the next generation of consumer internet apps would be social. This was 2004. That they'd be powered by user-generated content. And that they should be made from common parts that wouldn't require you to know how to code. So, I was pretty fired up about my mobile messaging concept. and actually had built a few prototypes and mock-ups that gave me the confidence this was a decent idea. But here's this chance to go join Mark Andreessen, the guy who started the first browser, and go and work on this really big idea together. So Mark and Gina extend me an offer to join them as a product manager. I wasn't a founder, I was actually a product manager. <laughs> and I'm like, come on guys, I have all this great product design experience, uh, but I'm not just a designer. Uh, I just graduated from Stanford GSB. I was an RJ Miller scholar for God's sakes. And you're giving me a, a product manager role. I could have gone back to immersion as a VP of engineering. This was a public company at the time. But I was really taken by Mark's ambition. So I accept the job and a pretty modest equity package, though it feels like I'm starting all over again, taking out the garbage. Fortunately, within six weeks or so, they promote me to VP, and I show up at my first meeting with Mark and Gina. Now, these were always over breakfast at the Palo Alto Creamery, where Mark was a favorite customer. He was there almost every day. Not anymore, in case you're looking for him. And Mark hands me this tear sheet with no less than 100 features that are going to be in the V1 product. So this thing's going to have a local guide and groups and photo sharing and discussion forums and tagging and ratings and reviews and like 90 other things. I'm like, wow, this feels like a lot. But let me go do some work. And I go off and I prototype a bunch of mock-up apps, sort of dem demonstration apps, including a version of Stanford's beloved 
uh, kind of online version of the Stanford Guide to the Good Life. I have no idea if this exists anymore, but it was one of my favorite things. It was filled with coupons. And then I build this clone of Yahoo Groups. Uh, and then I build this cool uh, discussion forum for Ford Mustang fanatics. And I come back to our next breakfast meeting and I share these mock-ups and Mark and Gina are like, whoa, that's really cool. But can you add? And then Mark hands me a new tear sheet with like another 50 features we would have to integrate. And this time it's got to have classifieds and restaurant reviews and an integration with Google Maps. So I go off and I build another set of prototype uh, mock-ups, including Yelp and Craigslist clones for all these geographies, cities that, didn't, that didn't, weren't large enough to actually have these services on their own. So places like Juneau, Alaska, I literally built a clone of Craigslist for Juneau. And I come back, another creamery breakfast, another 50 features. <laughs> Now it's going to have betting and dating and a rumor board. Oh, and it's an election year. So it was also going to have one of these election markets, sort of like the uh, uh, Iowa electronics markets that help the uh, prediction markets. And it, oh, it also had to be easy enough for non-technical users to use it, but also powerful and flexible enough that hardcore programmers could actually really get use out of it. And so I go off and I build more prototype apps and I begin working on the app building interface, which we affectionately call the playground. And as this repeat loop breakfast meeting dynamic continues, I begin to become very uncomfortable with this everything to everyone platform strategy. And in the midst of all this, Tim O'Reilly launches the first Web 2.0 conference. MySpace is on fire. Friendster's falling over. Uh, Facebook is a, still a close to just universities and colleges, but it's clear that it's growing like an angry weed. And YouTube blows up on the back of Andy Samberg's Lazy Sunday. Have any of you seen this? Some of you. Mark, of course, sees all this stuff happening as well. So you can probably imagine what happened at the next Creamery breakfast. Now our service was going to have, this is actually it, guys. <laughs> uh, it was going to have every feature from every Web 2.0 start, startup. I kind of joked at the time, we were going to build a mobile social network video podcasting with a tag navigatable wiki. Like, put it all together. Or as Chevy Chase once said, it's a dessert topping and a floor wax. <laughs> and this is when I decide to tag out. So unlike, that's Groundhog Day for those of you who don't know it. So unlike in the case of the Cisco phone, I was simply unable to manage that Cambrian explosion of ideas and features. What I ultimately realized was that platforms and viral expansion loops, as they were called at the time, are a great place to end up, but you're never going to get there if you don't focus on a single, unforgettable, minimally awesome product. How many of you have heard of Ning? 
five, six, seven of you, but you've all heard of YouTube and Tumblr and Facebook. Ning, the one ring meant to rule them all was sold to Glam for parts. Now, I'm still proud of the amazing team that we built and some of those distributed architecture concepts that we pioneered still live on actually in the data centers of companies like Facebook and LinkedIn and others. But this story should serve as a very important reminder that infinite ambition is actually not a goal. I was actually chastened by this experience, which in so many ways was like a photo negative of everything I had learned about bringing great products into the world. Trying to be everything to everyone ends in being nothing to anyone. And it's only ruthless focus and delivering real value to real customers, to real people, is the only way to win. So about six months later, I joined uh, Foundation Capital as an entrepreneur in residence. I was actually working on a few uh, interesting concepts. Um, and about six weeks in, one of the partners pulls me aside and he says, hey, you keep bringing these cool entrepreneurs in. Why don't you think about investing? And I was like, I don't want to think about investing. I'm working on this great, great idea. But I kept introducing people into the firm and cool startups. And a few more months went by and I realized I'm having as much fun as I've ever had. So I thought I'd give it a go and I transitioned to a principal in the fall of 2007. So here I was, a product designer turned entrepreneur, turned investor. Excited to take on this very interesting new challenge, but also feeling like I'm starting all over again. So I spend the next several months going deep in a few interesting areas. In fact, in many ways, I actually thought about early stage investing the same way I had thought about product design challenges. Observe, understand, synthesize hypotheses, test and iterate on those ideas with the smartest people that you know in those areas. This was how you built deep points of view. And as an EIR, I had spent some time in this very obscure area known as solar finance. Now, solar panels had been around for decades, but they were simply too expensive for anyone but the dark green rich consumer. It was actually simply diseconomic to go solar. But in 2005, George W. Bush signed into law the Solar Investment Tax Credit, which enabled businesses to capture a 30% tax credit on the cost of the solar systems that they had installed. And with this credit, solar could actually be cheaper than incumbent electricity. Now, a company called Sun Edison blew open this market opportunity, it was called Solar as a Service, but focused on the commercial market. So for companies like Marriott Hotels, Walmart, and lots of others. And when I saw Sun Edison's business model, I was immediately taken. It was as simple and beautiful as some of my favorite products. And it didn't take me long to ask, why isn't the same solar as a service business model also available to homeowners, to residential markets? So I decided to reach out to David Busby, who was the founder of Sun Edison, and he told me why. The transaction costs were simply too high, 
And the idea of managing hundreds of thousands, or maybe even if you were successful, millions of small solar systems on rooftops, as compared to building dozens or hundreds of very large-scale systems out in fields, was just too much brain damage. And they had no interest in taking this on. Which actually made me even more interested in learning more. So I went and figured out the four things that you had to get right in order to build this company. You had to have the capital structure to be able to buy millions of systems, the operating shops to actually manage them. You had to be able to navigate the gnarly regulatory landscape. And then you had to be able to offer a single simple offering to end consumers. And then through one of my Stanford Business School classmates, I got a warm introduction to Lynn Jurich and Ed Fenster. They were two Stanford GSB students a few years behind me, and they had just started a residential solar as a service company. So I invited Lynn and Ed down to present on a Friday afternoon. They walked me through their pitch, and it was as if I had been hit over the head with a hammer. Between the two of them, they had figured out all the things you had to get right in order to blow this market opportunity open. Lynn was a brilliant force of nature, Ed a strategist, and a financial savant. I mean, you literally could not genetically engineer a better founding duo to take on this opportunity. So I brought Ed and Lynn back in the following business day, literally the next partner meeting on Monday, uh, to present to our full partners. My partners were very impressed, actually in spite of, this was, the, this was literally the deck, this is the cover sheet of the deck, they were the fastest growing and fifth largest residential solar company in California. So they needed some work to do on marketing. Um, Lynn really hates it when I show this slide. Um, but my partners were impressed, but they had a few big questions. This was a business model innovation, not a technological one. And it wasn't clear at all to them, my partners, that this couldn't be copied in a minute. That solar investment tax credit I talked about earlier, it was actually set to expire later that year. And while there was some congressional momentum that it was going to get extended, this wasn't a given at all. And finally, there was a question about me. If this project was so great, could I actually win it? Would they take me on their board? I mean, I was seven months into my stint as an investor. I was just a principal, not a partner. My only prior investment was a $10,000 check behind Tristan Harris. He's a good guy. And he's spoken here. And here I am suggesting that we write a single-handed $8 million investment behind two first-time entrepreneurs working on a financial arbitrage opportunity in renewable energy, an area we didn't really know a lot about. <laughs> so what am I going to do? I just dig in with all I've got. And for most startups, it's actually pretty easy to tear down their unit economics and understand their operating plans and financial models. But this business was like nothing else that we had seen before. 
It had a crazy complicated capital structure with equity and tax equity and debt and construction loans. So I went and I build, built my own detailed financial model to prove to myself and to my partners that this was not going to be easy to copy if we figured it out. But more importantly, that if they were successful, this model would actually scale, not just with the investment tax credit, but much, much further, further along. And then there was that risk, that regulatory risk around the solar investment tax credit. This could literally go away with the stroke of a pen. We've seen this, by the way, in the last couple of years. Now, these aren't the things that a typical Silicon Valley software startup has to worry about. But in this case, I had to reach out to regulators and lobbyists, people in Washington, D.C. and Sacramento and cities that I had never been to before. And these were not people who were in the Rolodexes of a typical venture capitalist at the time. But I needed them to help understand whether the solar investment tax credit was actually going to get extended. Now, even having done all of this work, it wasn't going to be easy to win this project. I couldn't do it on my own. At the end of the day, I've learned something about venture capital, and that it is a team sport to win these investments. So I rallied my partners at Foundation Capital, and we wrapped our arms around Lynn and Ed. We showed them that we really understood their business and what it would take to win. And remember David Busby, the founder of Sun Edison, and my sounding board? With Ed and Lynn's permission, I was able to loop him into my due diligence. And when he began to tear it down and see what I saw, he asked if he could join us alongside in the investment round. So within two weeks of that fateful Friday meeting, we had signed a term sheet to buy 30% of the company. Now, I've just made my first investment. You kind of sit back and wait for the money to roll in, right? That's what this job looks like. I know you all think that. But there was this other remaining thing that we had to figure out. And that was we had to raise another $50 million of tax equity. So this was the capital that we would use to actually buy the systems, not the $8 million to fund the operating company. And the original plan was to do this by the end of June 2008. That was about a month after we had invested in the company. The end of June comes and goes. Then July, it's still not done. August, not done. Then comes September 2008. Lehman went bust at midnight on September 15th. And then seemingly, every day for the rest of the month, another legendary financial institution blows up. The bottom literally fell out of the financial markets. So here I am, three months into my first investment as a VC, and the world is literally teetering on collapse. But the team powered through, and they 
signed a term sheet on September 26, it was a Friday, with US Bank for $40 million of tax equity. It's this little ray of hope, we might make it through. And then, the following business day, the House of Representatives votes down the $700 billion financial bailout plan, and the Dow drops 778 points in a single day. Largest slide ever. We had a term sheet, that's great, but it's just a piece of paper. And when the world ends, all bets are off. So we pushed everyone, the team, US Bank, and all the lawyers who I don't think have forgiven us still, as hard as we could to close the deal, which we did barely in the nick of time. Within a few weeks, the capital markets had completely frozen over. And as Ed described it at the time, we had just flown the last helicopter out of Saigon. Now, Sunrun experienced many more white knuckle moments over the next handful of years. They all do. In 2012, the US Treasury, so the government, literally sued the company, along with all of our competitors, everyone in the market. And then there was this time when one of the investors who the company had turned down for one of the rounds of investment was so upset that the company had passed on their investment that they went and funded the founder, the original owner or registrant of sex.com to create a copy copycat of our business. Now, this didn't work out so well, as you might imagine. Um, but the team and I had a long enough focal length to kind of weather these near-term ups and downs. And today, Sunrun has more than 180,000 customers in just 15 of the 50 states. And there are 30 million more homes to go. So we took the company public in August of 2015 at a market cap just north of $1.3 billion. Lynn, in the center there, co-founder and CEO and brand new mom, she had her three-month-old with her, got to ring the bell. And I got that unicorn. Now, I've made another 20 or so investments over the last 10 years at Foundation Capital, and each one of them serves as kind of another canvas for another startup story. But let me just wrap it up with the three lessons that I have learned over and over again in my career. Learn how to sell. For Steve's snowblowing, this meant knocking on the door and asking for the order. At IDEO, this was about advocating for end users and the design process itself. And that foundation, this has meant cultivating authentic relationships with entrepreneurs and figuring out how to help them achieve their goals. Whatever this means for you, with the business that you want to go build, just swallow your fears and do it. Two, design matters. Not just the aesthetics or the pixels on the snowblowing flyer, but design as the what. What problem are you going to solve? What opportunity are you going to go after? What positive impact do you want to have in the world? As I learned to do at IDEO and failed to do at Ning, 
Focus on meeting real needs and wants. Find simplicity on the other side of complexity. Now, let me do a shameless plug here. Uh, if you want to learn more about this, check out, as Tina mentioned, The Way to Design, which is a book that I launched last year, and an audiobook, if you're more into audiobooks, um, I released just a couple of weeks ago. You can find that over on thewaytodesign.com. But back to the third lesson. Take out the garbage. Roll up your sleeves and rush to pound down those unglamorous tasks. I'm struck by how many young Stanford alums I meet and have worked with in only their third month on the job are already asking, hey, when do I get to be the CEO? I really admire the ambition, but remember, you're in the building mode of your careers. So be willing to sublimate your ego, but don't subordinate your values. And one more thing, you all are so fortunate to be here at Stanford. It's literally ground zero for entrepreneurial thought leaders. You all have a lot going for you. But as you all also know, success is not guaranteed. So when you do find it, savor it have fun, and enjoy the ride. And that's all I got. <laughs> cool. Yeah, Tina. So, um, and of course, everyone else can ask questions too. Um, so here you are, a designer at a VC firm. How do you change the way your partners think about design? How has your presence there influence the culture and the, the way that they look at uh, opportunities that come in there? Yeah, I think it's, it's a great question and it's, it's one where uh, what I've observed um, uh, as, as venture capital has gotten smarter on design and the role of design, the reflexive instinct is actually to bring in what is often called as a designer in residence. And I think the firms are doing this mostly as a service to their portfolio companies, you know, so that you can uh, help them out with uh, some of their kind of critical go-to-market and product challenges, um, which is a great service to have in some cases, um, although most companies need their own um, designers, interaction designers, or human factors people. I think what's different about our approach at Foundation is that we're not doing design as a service bolt-on. We think about design kind of in a more functional and sort of core way, so not as the aesthetics, if you will, but more so what question are you asking. And so, for example, as I began to, as I worked on the book, one of the things I was very fortunate to do is to talk to 50 amazing designer founders, entrepreneurs, design uh, historians, and scholars. And through the course of those interviews, 200 pages of notes, um, I saw some patterns. And in those patterns, I think um, what emerged, what was clear was you needed to kind of reframe design from that little d, from that sort of tweaking and tuning uh, instinct, uh, from the drapes and the drop shadows, if you will, to sort of this question of design as the reframing of what problem are you trying to solve. And so, um, whereas when I first started to talk about design, my partners were like, hey, bring in Steve, he's the guy with the cool shoes. No, it's not about that. Design is about what questions you're asking. And so I think they all now have been trained, but I also think it's really important um, that uh, when you do engage with a venture firm, if you do care about design, design as a bolt-on um, very rarely works. It's for the same reason why 
uh, many of those consultancies, design consultancies that get you know, scooped up by IBM or McKinsey or, or, or General Electric, oftentimes that, that stuff actually doesn't work. So not a bolt-on, think about it as core. Yeah. Is there a company in your portfolio that uh, you invested, but then they missed the deadlines, milestones a lot? You didn't want to invest the next round, but you still inside want another VC to invest? You know, I think that, uh, yeah, sorry, the question was, um, and, and, and correct me if I, I don't get it completely, are there companies where we invest and then uh, they don't hit their milestones and, and then we don't want to invest any longer? Uh, but we want someone else to invest. That doesn't usually work. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I think what's challenging about those kinds of situations, and they happen in every venture firm, um, is companies, you know, milestones slide to the right, just like they did at Sunrun. Um, but what that ends up doing is it calls into question, um, you know, are you too early, for example? Um, or maybe the product really doesn't deserve to exist. Maybe this thing is, is kind of a neat idea, whiz-bang thing, but there's no market for it. And so what we typically do is if we've invested a material amount of capital um, and, and something's not working, we actually kind of build a sub-team around that company and we figure out whether we still believe. In other words, whether, whether if this company were able to kind of continue forward, is there still an interesting market for it? And if we believe that that's true, then we will actually reinvest in that company. Sometimes it requires sort of restructuring the company. Um, and that restructuring can attract other investors in. So if they think, oh, this is actually a really good team, maybe they're two years too early, um, but we'd be willing to actually join you on that. So it happens occasionally. Um, but keep in mind, every startup. So we were early investors in Netflix. Netflix, as a public company, almost ran out of money five times. It went public at a $350 million market cap. By the way, Blockbuster was a $3 billion company at the time. Any of you use Blockbuster anymore? One, you do. <laughs> uh, so, so, so they all hit. They all hit their uh, their snags. Even the most successful ones. Yeah. You spoke about the 2008 crisis, and uh, if I remember correctly, around that time, Sequoia had this uh, paper that was going on, RIP. I did. Um, so, uh, what was your feeling these days, and uh, in the future, what's your sort of crystal ball saying about? Uh, is there any such thing going on? I've, I've learned that I can't predict these things, um, if anything. And, uh, and, you know, I think you just kind of roll with the punches uh, and, and figure out how to manage those. But, um, but those, you know, those docs are helpful from time to time. But mo most folks are actually doing all that stuff without having to circulate a presentation. So, yeah. Yeah. How do you deal with starting over thrice in your career? Did it worry you at any point? Or Absolutely. <laughs> oh, sorry, the, the question. Um, sorry, I, I didn't repeat the last question either. Uh, I restarted. I started over three times in my career. Uh, what was that like? Uh, sounds kind of crazy and scary. Um, I did, absolutely. Um, and it was really scary. Um, and I also love it. I, I you know, still run a business, silly kind of product business on the side. It keeps, uh, keeps my creative juices flowing. I'm sort of a, a person who loves to learn new things. And so um, I was fired up by those challenges, but I was also aware of the fact that, uh, that, that I wasn't always necessarily the right person uh, as I was in those early kind of building mode, hence the sort of learn when you need to kind of go back to taking out the garbage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
when someone tells you, I want X, but you think, actually, I think what you need is Y, how do you determine when you're actually correct and when you understand their needs better than they do versus trusting that they actually understand their needs? How do you differentiate it? Uh, the answer absolutely depends um, because uh, if I'm talking to someone who's spent thousands of hours focused on some market opportunity uh, and they have evidence uh, to prove that you know their point of view is the right one, uh, then I then then I then I respect that. Um, but in general, I think I'm I'm very practical about these things, um, and I would love to sort of most cases, again, turn these things into design challenges. That's my instinct. That's what, like if you, if you said sort of, what is the thing you always go back to across all three times of change, you know, changing careers? I was imprinted like a baby duck here at Stanford on these design, you know, sort of design challenges. And so I go back to prototyping, hypothesizing, sharing those ideas with the best and smartest people that I know, and I gather as much data as I can. But that's that's all I know how to do, really. That's the skill under it all. Yeah, in the back. Um, when, you, when you're looking into investing in the company, what are you indexing for <coughs> or less? Or do you have any specific methodology? Or... So when we invest in a company, what are the things that we look for? Is that? Yes. What do you index more on? Like, is there a team or market or or? or... Yeah, it's a great question. So do we index on one thing over another? You know, when I started in the career, or in venture capital. Uh, I remember one of my partners, Mike Shu, um, you know, reminded me of the five things, and it was market, team, technology, or product, uh, the business model itself, uh, and then, of course, one thing that has nothing to do with the company but more to do with us, uh, which was the expected return on a dollar invested. So those were the five things, but I have learned in my experience that the team is the one thing that can, for example, adjust the product or technology or can find the new market uh, when the first one doesn't work out. So I over-index probably, and sometimes uh, perhaps too much so, on, on the team. Uh, and I, I think that also is informed by uh, the further along you get in your career, you realize it's how you spend your time that becomes very, very important. And I want to work with people who I can imagine working with, like Lynn, who I've been working with now literally for 10 years. Um, so team is a really, really important thing for me. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production, supported by the venture capital firm DFJ. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.